Congress back in 2010 created a loan guarantee program to run through the Commerce Department. Its purpose was to help along technological innovation in small and medium manufacturers. But the program never got started. Why not? For some answers, we turn to the Director for Science, Technology Assessment and Analytics at the Government Accountability Office, Candace Wright. Ms. Wright, good to have you back. Thanks for having me again. And this is an unusual report because usually you look at what might be improved with the program or what went wrong. In this case, you were looking at whatever happened to the program in the first place. Tell us the background here. Certainly. So uh, GAO has been looking at this program, the Innovative Technologies and Manufacturing Loan Guarantee Program, actually since 2013. And this was in response to a mandate that appeared in the America Competes Reauthorization Act back in 2010. And that called for GAO to conduct a review of the program every two years. We actually recently issued our fifth report. What we found is that while Congress had directed the Commerce Department to establish this program, they have not done so for a variety of reasons. These reasons range from a number of different perspectives, in particular because the Commerce Department has determined um, or perceived that there is a lack of demand for such a program. And there were also concerns that the program could duplicate with other loan programs that exist at SBA. And then there was just this broader perspective that they had about, you know, uncertainty whether lenders would actually participate in the program. Given the fact that there are lenders that would have been involved, then it was not money that the Congress appropriated for it, but just the authorization to engage with external lenders. Is that how it was structured? So actually, when the program was authorized, the Commerce Department, which ended up delegating implementation of the program to the Economic Development Administration, um, there was actually funding that was provided and appropriated in fiscal years 2012 through 15. Congress appropriated $19 million for the program. Over the course of the time that the funding was appropriated, Um, and provided to the Commerce Department and subsequently to the Economic Development Administration, they actually only spent about 500000 of the funding that they were appropriated. And that was initially to take a look at some initial planning steps to get the program off the ground. So they hired a contractor to help them develop a funding model to assess, um, you know, the feasibility of such a loan guarantee program, as well as to develop uh, materials to market the program. What subsequently happened is that there was a congressionally directed requirement for the Commerce Department to uh, rescind some funds from EDA, um, which is the Economic Development Administration. And so uh, the way that that was determined that the agency would apply that congressionally required rescission requirement was to apply those rescissions to the ITM program, the Innovative Technologies and Manufacturing Program. So they rescinded um, about $18.5 million of that funding in 2017 through 2019. So what was there to look at this time around then? You were obligated to look at it, but was there any point to looking at it if the money had all been rescinded? So we have continued to report um, over the last few years where the department stands in implementing the program and that while they did take some initial steps, they've never gotten the program off the ground and it doesn't seem that they have any plans to do so. As it stands, we are statutorily required to continue reporting on the program. However, given the limited action that there has been, um, you know, certainly we're looking at um, different options for you know, whether or not there's a need for us to continue to, to review the program given the department has said that they don't have any plans to implement it.
We're speaking with Candace Wright. She's Director for Science, Technology Assessment and Analytics at the Government Accountability Office. And just briefly, these loans were to be for small businesses for new technology or new training to improve what it is they were making and the processes they used to manufacture it? Yeah, so the ITM program would have provided loan guarantees really to help small and medium-sized manufacturers to adopt or produce innovative technologies. Essentially, the way the program would have worked is that for any manufacturers that would have participated in the program, there would have been a promise to lenders that the federal government would pay off some or all of the loan in the event that the manufacturers defaulted. The program was developed to boost American competitiveness in manufacturing and to ensure that small and medium-sized manufacturers can continue to contribute to the economy. And you said earlier there are SBA programs that do, in effect, the same thing, and those are up and running and going normally? Yes. So um, in the course of our work over the last few years, we've certainly seen, um, you know, where one of the concerns about establishing the program within the Commerce Department was that the ITM program may have potentially duplicated SBA 7A program, which is also geared towards small businesses. However, perhaps what's different with ITM is that it's intended for small and medium-sized manufacturers and, again, would have been geared to those involved in, you know, using or producing innovative manufacturing technologies. Another thing I'll note that's different is, you know, um, with the SBA 7A loan programs, um, certainly that's something that's been very well established. It's been around for some time, and there was a perception that there would be limited demand for the ITM program given this other longstanding program with SBA 7A loan program. I'll also note, too, that when you look in comparison at the funding made available, the SBA 7A loan program had about $3.2 billion in fiscal year 2021. Uh, you know, you compare that to the $19 million that was appropriated for the ITM program. Certainly, it's, you know, vastly different. So the GAO makes lists of duplicative programs from time to time. From that standpoint, you must be saying, great, they've avoided a duplicative program. On the other hand, as an agency that looks at agency compliance with congressional wishes, you must be saying, how can this happen? So what should we take away from this idea that a department simply didn't go ahead with a program that Congress expected it to? Well, again, I think there's a question of whether there is a demand for the program, and it's not clear that that's fully been assessed. Um, You know, when you think about some of the manufacturing challenges that have been revealed during the COVID-19 pandemic, there may be some questions as to whether or not it's time to reassess, you know, whether there is a demand for the program and what that should mean for any implementation. That being said, one of the key things that will need to be considered is the fact that the Commerce Department had rescinded funding for the program, and so there isn't funding available. And so if there were a decision that, you know, this program should be implemented, that would need to be a consideration to provide additional appropriations to implement it. But at the moment, there's no members of Congress standing on their desks hollering for Commerce to do this. Well, we've certainly provided the information to the Congress, and, uh, you know, this information is all publicly available. And, uh, I mean, I guess that's just the policy decision that will need to be made. Candace Wright is Director for Science, Technology Assessment, and Analytics at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley. 
the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.